Hello, and welcome to another episode of Under the Radar SFF Books Podcast. My name is Blaze. Thank you so much for joining me wherever you are around the world. I apologize for the late delay. Uh, as, as many of you know, holidays will take that right out of you, and I ate way too much for my comfort, and I'm sure everyone can attest to that. I'm pleased to be welcomed by fellow fantasy author P.L. Stewart. He is the author of his debut novel, A Drowned Kingdom, book one in the Drowned Kingdom saga. PL, thank you so much for joining me. Welcome. Oh, thank you so much, Blaze. I am so honored to be here and happy. <laughs> no worries at all. So it was a pleasure to meet you. Um, we uh, talked on Twitter, uh, just sending tweets back and forth about uh, you've been following my blog and how you wanted me to see if I would be interested in reading your book, A Drowned Kingdom. I'm looking at the cover right now and it's absolutely gorgeous. And I thought, you know what, let's give it, give it a shot. It's an epic fantasy dealing with um, a royal family and how they're dealing with a lot of family drama, a lot of uh, foreign, foreign affairs and a lot, of, a lot of war. And it's also a lot of uh, a very big historical type of uh, epic fantasy as well. So why don't you just give us a basic intro into um, your debut novel, what it's about, what type of readers would enjoy it, and uh, we can just go from there. Okay, sounds good. So uh, A Drowned Kingdom is uh, partially based on my version of the tale of uh, the Lost Realm of Atlantis, uh, which of course was penned by the famous philosopher Plato. Um, it is, I would consider my book epic high fantasy. I, I probably would qualify that and make it epic dark high fantasy. Yes. Uh, not quite grim dark, but definitely some dark and potentially disturbing uh, and controversial themes. And it is, it, it focuses on uh, Othrin, who is the second in line to the throne of my version of Atlantis, which I call Atlantics. I didn't get too creative there, but there's reasons for that. And so the realm is called Atlantics, and uh, he leads the last survivors of his people uh, following the downfall of Atlantics uh, to a new continent where he tries to establish a foothold. He has to make alliances, uh, deal with um, what he would consider uh, pagan, manage, pay, sorry, pagan magic because he uh, he's worships a monotheistic faith. And uh, he has to uh, try and establish a legacy for himself and his people in the face and, and potentially face extinction uh, with, uh, with all the, uh, the hostile warlords that could potentially uh, take him and his people off the map. So Yeah, and it's a very, it's a very engaging <clears throat> work. And it's also a very, um, very heart heartwarming in a lot of ways. And it's also mysterious because that deals with some kind of hidden magic the, quick, the, the further you get into the book. I wanted to dive into the book specifically. And it's, it's, specific, it's split into three parts, technically four if you count the prologue, but we'll, we'll get past that. So you start with the prologue, which is basically an, <clears throat> intro, an intro from Othron's point of view as to what is currently happening. And then it splits into three parts. The first part, and before I get into this, each part seems like it could have been written by a different author just because of the tone and the themes and the writing style. It shifts kind of drastically. And I've never seen that done in one book before. Actually, the only other book, but it's science fiction that I've seen someone do this was Dan Simmons' Hyperion. I don't know if you read that book, but there's six sections and each section is written from one person's point of view. And it could have been a completely different writer writing those. And it's, it was just beautifully written. Part one specifically is very, um, it's more like classical fantasy written, very historical. 
it's kind of like, uh, reminded me a lot of Robert Jordan. Um, and then the parts two and three get a lot more um, action, a lot more intrigue. And those are the parts that I really enjoy. But other authors have enjoyed parts one as well. So what was the, what was your thought process splitting the book up that way and just doing three separate parts or kind of three different writing styles as well? Well, uh, one thing I wanted to do was uh, in part one, uh, besides paying homage to Plato's tale and giving you a real bird's eye view into my version of uh, Atlantis, as you know, from, from reading it, Blaze, it's, it's quite detailed. And, and in terms of the world building, it's quite descriptive. So you really get a sense of what Atlantis, Atlantics, my version was like, uh, prior to being destroyed. And I wanted that impression to be, you know, indelible in the reader's mind. Uh, one another fellow author, great author, uh, Tim Hardy, who you know well, he described it as as my, part one as if uh, if something to the effect of if if George R. R. Martin and, and J.R. Tolkien wrote The Cimmerillion, that was that's basically part one. Um, I also wanted to establish Othman's backstory uh, so that people could understand what his motivations were, the society came from, the privilege he came from, um, his dysfunctional family relationships, what motivates him, his insecurities. I wanted all that laid bare uh, for the reader, his flaws, which he has many, his very bigoted, uh, prejudiced views. I wanted that set up uh, all kind of I guess you could say pushed at you. So you were under uh, no illusions about the man you were dealing with and what he was all about and where he came from. Parts two and three, obviously, as you the journey continues following the fall of Atlantics and he has to uh, make alliances, cope with his new realities. I wanted those parts to feel very frenetic because he, it's very chaotic for him. He doesn't have time to absorb a lot of things. He has to think on his feet. He has to change and shift and adapt with the changing circumstances. And of course, there is uh, intrigue and battle, and those are, are very chaotic, frenetic things. So I wanted to capture that. So I wanted those, those parts to feel very different from part one. Yeah, great. All those parts, they sing a different tone and they they just really hit home because it feels like you're it's coming at you from so many different angles. You kind of don't know which way to way to turn. So growing up when you got introduced to fantasy from the very beginning, who would you say were was your pillars for the genre? And over time, who would you say are your favorite authors uh, today? Like what got you started in the family fantasy genre? Well, I started very young and I, I was raised on all the classics and my background is, is uh, medieval literature and history. That's of course, later on when I went to university, that's, that's when I took English uh, medieval literature and a minor history. Um, the I started off reading, again, a lot of the, the classics and classical literature beyond just uh, the 20th century, obviously, um, you know, I, you know, the Iliad, the Odyssey, you know, uh, Milton, you know, um, Sir Thomas Mallory, and of course, the modern classical fantasy, the Tolkien's and the uh, Lord Alexander's and the uh, C.S. Lewis's and the T.H. White's. And, you know, and as I progressed, definitely into the George R. R. Martins, the N.K. Jemisins, the John Gwynns of today. But actually, predominantly today, as I've said in, in different interviews, I read mostly self-published fantasy authors. So some of my idols, I've had the honor and pleasure of now making friends with them. You know, the Bjorn Larsons, the Tim Hardys, the Krista Matars, the Angela Boards, the Lucien Telfords, uh, the Sean Bells, uh, Eve Kagoshis. I can go on and on. There's so many, um, you know, uh, but... I now I the people that I I really look to are our fellow authors authors sorry contemporaries of 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 me that that I really admire reading reading their work. 
Yeah, self-publishing uh, authors are, is the way to go. I mean, that's where that's where I made my bones and where I started uh, doing book reviews, and it's just grown. It's just grown from there. And nothing that nothing wrong with traditional publishing and liking those authors. Of course, I, my favorite author, John Wen, is is in orbit. So, but there's something else to be said about self-published authors and and going through the self and indie publishing thing. It's I feel like it's more more, more lifeblood. It's like more, um, more time invested. It just feels like a different process. And with that being said, how would you um, go about explaining to, or talking to other fellow self-published authors about the process of self-publishing, what that entails, like what the challenges are? I asked this on all my other interviews. I'm curious to get your perspective on that. Well, the challenges are um, you don't have the uh, huge marketing, uh, you know, distribution uh, giant that is traditional publishing. Um, the perception is, and I'm not saying it's a reality, is that you have less prestige. And uh, when you're an influence, when you're uh, publishing, uh, when you're self-publishing. Um, and so much more of the, uh, the minutia is typically on your, on your head, unless you're going to get assistance from outside. So, you know, designing the cover and the, the, the whole print process and um, how to navigate uh, where you're going to publish your book, including Amazon and, and all these other facets are all on the, the writer's head. And either you get some help, uh, you may get, uh, you may contract various parts of the process out. And of course that would be so besides uh, that, there's a cost investment that isn't required with most uh, traditional publishing, whereas you're getting paid uh, an advance to publish with a, with a big trad house. Um, instead, you're putting out money uh, to, to self-publish. So those are some of the advantages. However, you know, I, I, I can't help but add the advantages, the creative freedom uh, that you have with self-publishing, the expedited publishing timelines. Uh, mm -hmm. you know, some of those really prolific authors, they pump out you know, a couple books, three, four, five books uh, a year. And the royalties uh, uh, tend to be higher. So there, there, there are a lot of advantages. It can be more financially lucrative. Um, but, you know, there's always a trade-off, right? So. But the industry is changing. Industry's changing. I think self-publishing is emerging as essentially will emerge as the most viable option for the vast majority of authors. Yeah, exactly. Uh, especially with all these new um, co contests for self-publishing awards uh, out and the ease at which you can publish your work through through Amazon, through um, through Kindle Kindle books, it makes it that much more accessible. Not the way it was like 20 years ago, where you had to basically go down traditional or nothing so it's changed the industry for the better and it made it makes the genre that much more better uh well speaking of your self-publishing series you, you've we've talked about this before how ambitious you are with your with your series and correct me if i'm wrong i'm just gonna read i'm just gonna read from it so this series the the drowned kingdom saga is supposed to be seven book series is that correct that is correct you're planning a sequel seven book um, series uh, after this one. Is that correct? That's correct. <laughs> Plus, you have two prequel trilogies in the works or in your mind for this series as well. So that that in total is 20 books scheduled for, for this series. Uh, how, am, how did you come up with this in your head? And how can you possibly go about uh, keeping all this straight? I'm just actually curious as to history of this. Well, I'm nothing, I'm not a planner. And then the original concept uh, was uh, when I wrote the Drowned Kingdom saga, it was supposed to be one big clonker book of, I guess, in the in the close to the thousand page or plus mark. 
when I realized that no one is going to read that for me. Uh, I'm not George R. R. Martin. I'm not a famous author. I'm, I'd be started as a nobody, a novice with no following. Um, the best, the smartest thing, the most sensible financial thing to do would be because when you write a fantasy series, the more books you write, the books tend to uh, help sell each other and, and, and pr propel your series forward. I said, I want to just split it up. So I split that, that essentially up into seven books. And then I always had the idea for a follow-up series. Originally, that was a trilogy, but I'm like, I have enough material to make another seven books. And then to make, to tie in, to make the first series really, I think, compelling and just put it over the edge. There were two characters that identified that my main character, Othrin, worships as heroes. Uh, one, if you read the book, is called The Purple Prince. Uh, the other is uh, the first king of Atalantics called yep. Atalan. And he worships those two uh, as iconic heroes. I thought, wouldn't it be cool to go back and look at and see if they're actually anything close to how he envisions them? Um, hint, hint, they're not going to be. And uh, I thought that would make for, for quite, a, quite an interesting, uh, two interesting trilogies because they are quite colorful characters in their own right. So, uh, yeah, that's, I, I, I have it all planned out. I'm nothing if not a planner. So. <laughs> Wow, that's that's fantastic and super ambitious. So you planned it all out. Do you have all of you have all the material written down for your first seven book? Yep the first the first seven book series is essentially the guts of it is written. It's just a lot of editing, flushing some side plot, some subplots out, and adding some layers of complexity to really tie it all together well. Um, the basic outline of the two prequel trilogies is already done. Uh, so the basic outline. Um, and then the seven, the follow-up seven book series, again, a basic outline uh, is already uh, completed. So the titles are all chosen. Um, you know, I know what the covers are going to look like. Uh, so yeah, largely planned. <laughs> and, speak, and speaking of covers, today we officially, um, PL and I uh, officially released the cover for the second book in the series, The Last of the Atalantians. Uh, it's on my blog post, I'm sure. Uh, P.L. will retweet it as well. Um, it's a gorgeous cover of that um, that nice red uh, red mammoth with a black background. Um, I remember you showing it to me, and I'm like, "Oh my god, I've never seen a cover like this before!" And I can't wait to actually see it. So, uh, book two is scheduled to be released in the spring of 2020. Uh, is is that correct? Yeah, it's going to be released in a, hopefully a month or two. Amazing. And if you guys are a fan of book one, I'm sure this is just going to be just as epic and just as grand. And I've been told it's going to be a lot more on the action side. So parts two and three, which are really kick it into hyperdrive, which is what I like, which is what I like to read. Nothing wrong with the historical part of part one. A lot more action is what I like to read, hence my John Gwen fandom. So let's talk about your actual um, writing writing process. So you obviously you have a time job, obviously you have a family. How do you balance the um, work-life family balance and just get the writing and the editing done? Is it just in your spare time or do you have to set schedule uh, chunks of time out? Well, because I work shift work plays, um, I don't have a set time. It's just based around my work schedule. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm pretty, uh, you know, devoted to this, um, this writing craft. My wife and I, uh, we're treating as a business. We partner together. Um, you know, we corporate as a business, you know, got uh, accounted, tax lawyers, et cetera, and uh, treat it as, as a startup, essentially. And um, we um, decided that um, we we're going to devote the vast majority of our spare time that we, what we don't reserve for our family and you know things like working out, et cetera, is is writing and writing related activities. So 
I write um, when the mood hits me. I don't have a set word count. I, I, I don't set aside, okay, I'm going to write, say, 100 words, you know, today and 100 words tomorrow, 300. Nope. I, when I'm in the mood to write, I write. And when I'm not, when I don't have the energy, um, I have a very a fantastic job, but it can be very draining. Um, I don't write and I do other things and, you know, so, but, but I, I have my self-imposed deadlines. So as long as I'm meeting those self-imposed deadlines, I don't concern myself with how many words I, I spit out uh, each day. And I, I am committed to turning out at least one book every year. So as long as I can meet that deadline, I'm, I'm on track. So, you know, I'm pretty good at that little clock in my head that, that ticks and says, oh, you're behind. And then I start pick up the pace and, you know, and then sometimes I'm like, okay, I'm on track. So I can take a little breather today. So yeah, that's, that's essentially how I work it. Yeah. That's amazing. I know, I know the feeling sometimes it can be overwhelming, um, like reading, reading all these books and just trying to set a schedule. And sometimes I'd be like, I just can't, I don't feel like reading anything. I just need to sit down on the couch and do nothing for like a day just to recharge the batteries because love, I love doing what I do. And I'm sure you love doing what you do, reading and reading and writing, but yeah, it can be taxing. You need to take time for yourself and time for your well-being. If anything is what this pandemic has taught us is you can't, if you don't take care of yourself, you're not going to be a better person to you or to anybody, especially your family. So um, I take that to heart. So I'm glad that other people see that that way as well. So what would you say you are reading now? You said primarily you, you uh, are reading self-published uh, authors. Can you give us any suggestions of stuff you've been reading? And we can go over some uh, some fun authors and some books as well. Yeah, so I've also taken, I've also become uh, somewhat of a blogger. I, with the wonderful um, Before We Go blog, uh, led by the incredible Beth Tabler, um, so I'm actually now the, one of the assistant editors with Brianna Snyder of, of that blog. Uh, yeah, predominantly reading uh, self, a mix of self-pub and, and traditionally published, uh, mostly fantasy and sci-fi, the odd romance and historical fiction there. Some of the best books I think I've mentioned, uh, at least the authors earlier, uh, some of the best books I've read in a while, um, you know, E.J., E.G. Radcliffe, great series. Uh, she writes uh, Coming of Age series, The Hidden King. I have... The other two books I haven't gotten to yet, but her stuff is great. Um, Jenny Wirtz, of course, um, you know, Chris the Mist, right? Now I'm hooked on Jenny Wirtz. <laughs> uh, she was kind enough to send me uh, one of her standalone books to write, Hell's Chasm. I'll be reading that uh, hopefully in the near future. Um, but very, she's a phenomenal author, an iconic author. Uh, Bjorn Larson, uh, he write, can write anything. He writes historical fiction. He writes fantasy. He writes mostly a Norse mythology. He's, he's like a, an expert in North mythology. Children, his book is phenomenal and also creation and his historical fiction storytellers, all great reading. Uh, Tim Hardy uh, writes the Brotherhood of the Eagle series, uh, Hollow Bones, uh, which is an SBFBO current finalist and the Fall of Sundered Souls, great series. Um, Holly Tinsley, We Men of Ash and Shadow, um, her fault is, is also coming, uh, the hand that cast the bone in the future. That's going to be huge, huge, grim, dark, uh, you know, big right now. Crystal Matar, Legacy of Brightwash, probably most people's book of the year in self-published fantasy. She's also a SBF field finalist. So was Holly. And so was Tim. Uh, I could go on, but yeah, th those are just some of the amazing books that I've, I've, I've been reading recently. Yeah, Legacy of the Brightwash. I have that on my TBR. I'll be reading in the next month or so. I heard it's very, very ambitious and very epic in, in scope. So fingers crossed that it's, uh, I enjoy that as well. And of course, Jannie Wirtz, I just finished her final um, uh, Destiny's Conflict, which is the last published book that she did. Huge, huge fan of that. Can't wait for the finale to be published, hopefully sometime this coming 
year as well. Um, why don't we shift to, I know that, um, correct me if I'm wrong, you're a huge Wheel of Time fan, is that correct? Yes, I am. Um, Wheel of Time, um, you know, A Song of Ice and Fire. Um, th- there's some, some of those iconic series are just, you know, I mean, they, they're the foundation for a lot of uh, writers writing and, but yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm a, I'm a Wheel of Time is, is one of the, is one of my top series. And I got a lot of that influence reading part one of your book, especially very similar to Robert Jordan's writing. Um, have you watched the TV show? I have not yet. I have uh, not. Okay. It's, it, 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 I plan to. Um, that's one of the few shows that actually I will have the pleasure of reading the books first prior to watching the show. Unfortunately, a lot of those uh, those 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 big classic uh, like A Song of Ice and Fire actually uh, I actually saw most of the TV series before I finished reading the books. Mm-hmm. So I don't know if that spoiled it for me or not, but. Um, in any case, this is one of the first ones that I'll actually get to, to watch after The Witcher. Um, same thing. Watch the TV show before I've read all the books. I have read some of the books, but not all of them. So, yeah. Yeah, we just finished watching The Witcher season two, uh, yeah. my wife and I. And fantastic. yeah, it's fantastic. It's fantastic. a lot less... <laughs> A lot less confusing than season one with the different timelines. Mm-hmm. I got four episodes in before my wife turned to me and said, you know, there's two timelines going on. I'm like, what? Yeah. I had to rewatch it. I had to rewatch it. And then she's, she's absolutely right. I'm like, it was mind blowing as well. So I hope you enjoy um, Wheel of Time uh, and stay away from any um, spoiler type things on online. Cause they do, they do make changes. Some for, some for good, some for not so good, but that's the beauty okay. of television. Everyone can uh, make up make up their own mind about it. Oh, thanks for the heads up. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> no worries at all. No worries at all. So with the release of the cover of your second book, why don't you tell us about it and where the, our characters uh, go from here? Well, the second book, um, you know, entitled The Last Day of Atlanteans, it's a very uh, special uh, and symbolic title because um, without giving too many of these giving away too many spoilers from the first book, um, Othran is in a position where um, by virtue of what's happened, um, he's the leader of the last of the Atalanteans. Uh, their civilization has been destroyed. And no matter what happens from here, there's going to be one of two paths. Either the Atalanteans themselves will be destroyed, and so will Othran, and they will fade into history. But even if they survive, uh, they will become something different. They'll have a different name. Othran endeavors to establish a kingdom with a different name. They'll be called as, you know, to go along with that name. So, you know, it, it really is truly the end of uh, essentially their society as they know it. They're going to have the vestige of that society. They're going to carry a lot of those traditions and, and, and customs going forward. But essentially they are, this is, this, this will represent the last of, of what they were. So, um, you know, and, and, and that involves change and evolution, hopefully. Uh, just as we're hoping that Othran has a chance for some changes in evolution, because, you know, if, again, if you read the book, he's, he's got some issues. <laughs> so Yes. The main is a big theme in this, um, in your series is like the flawed character, the flawed main character and how we adjust to them. And one of his, well, I'm not going to say it's a flaw, but it's definitely an attribute of his. It, it's a very religious series is that he sees basically an angel in not to be any spoilers, but what was your um, influence for introducing like a religious side of it? Uh, and particularly through Othran's uh, point of view. Well, organized religion, organized religion versus spirituality is one of the most fascinating uh, things for me. Like I was raised very religious, mm-hmm. formerly religious, and I would consider myself now more spiritual than former religious. And I, and I think the one thing that 
I've learned in my personal uh, journey through spirituality is that, um, you know, organized religion has been a, a force for good in, in many ways. And it doesn't matter, take your religion. I'm not, not a specific religion, but take the major ones, you know, Christianity, Islam, Judaism, etc. However, on the contrary, they've also, unfortunately, organized religion has 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 committed some things that are, are atrocious. So there's always that, um, you know, that that pull and push about uh, what does organized religion mean? What does it represent? Um, you know, who controls and influences it? And realizing that organized religion is human made. Anything that's human made is subject to flaw. If you are spiritual and you believe that it doesn't matter what you worship, whether pagan, um, you know, Christian, etc., you may worship a deity or deities, but they're seen as being more divine, certainly more perfect usually than than humankind. However, religion itself is fraught with the frailties and issues of humans because they're running it. And, and that's a big theme in my book. And, and that's also what inspired um, a lot of the, you see the, the you know, religious intolerance and and uh, you know hostility towards different religions and what does it mean to religious? What does it mean to be spiritual? Faith, how do you define faith? You know, what is important in faith? So those are all big themes in my book. Yeah, it's a fantastic theme. Oh, and another theme you go into is um, history and particularly family history, especially um, Othran's um, uh, family tree going back and how he's learning histories about his family from secondary characters that he didn't even know about or he knew about, but he knew it in a different way. You twist it a little bit so that he's he's basically learning it as the reader is learning it. Uh, and it's just shocking to him as to atrocities his family has done and how he can learn to try to be a better man. But he's also flawed in a way where he like he's trying to do it, but he doesn't know if he actually can. So what was the writing process of going into the family history of Othran and obviously um, history of the land as well going forward? Because that's going to be a major theme in your book, I'm sure, for the rest of the series. No, you hit the nail head, Blaze. That's very astute of you. And that is going to continue. And you're going to see a lot more of that um, in various ways come out in The Last of the Atlanteans um, about family history and revelations about uh, Othran's family that perhaps you didn't realize. The historical aspect is interesting because what I tried to do with Othran and his family is paint uh, what I believe is a realistic picture of a pseudo, you know, medieval type royal royal family of, you know, some of that era, right? And with all of its, you know, secrets and intrigue and backstabbing. And, you know, the one thing about, about I, I, I want to paint was that people in those positions are human. They have human uh, frailties. They have human insecurities. They make bad decisions. They make good decisions too. And they may have good leadership qualities, but they're not perfect. However, their actions, because of the power that they wield, affect so many more people. And uh, their flaws affect so many more people, potentially impact them negatively. And they have the same family drama as, as, as anyone else. And that, but that family drama can spill out and spin off into ways that are, are again, can be catastrophic potentially for, um, you know, for their subjects. So I wanted to um, very much depict that in a way that I thought was realistic and reflective of typical, you know, a medieval type, a royal family. So yeah, and it's, and it's fully realized in book, in book one, and it'll be fleshed out even more in, in the rest of the series as well. And just one more 
one more question and we're going into the religious aspect of in the spirituality. So Othron and the Atalanteans, they believe in the, is it the one true God or the one true power? I, I believe it was Con converse with the, the land that they're visiting. Uh, and those citizens believe in the six elemental gods. I, I'm trying to remember exactly the wording for it. So it's a clashing of two, um, two different um, cultures in that, in that sense and how they're, mixing together. I'm not going to get into spoilers, but Othran meets this other character who, and they talk about their different uh, spiritual worships and what they're doing with that. And there's also a magic element mixed in that as well. Was that something that was very fun to write a two clashing um, spiritual cultures as well? Yeah, that was extremely fun to write and extremely um, that's what I think is probably one of the most complex uh, issues facing um, societies today is where where cultures and religions and belief systems clash um, and the ability for those uh, beliefs to coexist side by side potentially right unfortunately uh, we as humankind don't do a good job of that we tend to unfortunately engage oftentimes in persecution um, historically when it comes to people who don't believe in the faith that we believe in um, you know part of it is is humankind having belief systems whereby they feel that the only belief is their belief and there's only room sometimes for their belief and that they have, have and even if they can coexist with another belief, that their belief is the right belief. Yeah. Um, you know, the issue with Othran and the society he comes from and this monotheistic colonial society is that like many colonial societies, they, they decide to, that they feel that they need to impose those beliefs on the people they conquer. So um, that makes it particularly challenging for Othran and particularly challenging when uh, he encounters, um, and it's the six elemental goddesses. In this case, that's one of the, that's the major religion of the area that he's in. And there's also uh, other religions uh, he's gone to, he's previously experienced in the new continent, but is when he feels that he will, he should impose, actually it's his duty and his mission yeah, to impose uh, his monotheistic beliefs on the other cultures for their own good, um, you know. So, and that's that's obviously going to be a source for conflict on its own, regardless of anything else that's going on. So, I think hopefully that that makes for some fascinating, um, you know, reading, especially when um, the other cultures uh, don't particularly uh, plan to have uh, their 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 religions wiped out and and authors used imposed upon them. So. Well, that conflict is not enough to get the uh, the readers excited. It's definitely going to be your your combat scenes, especially in in part two. No spoilers, but that was probably one of my favorite parts of the book. It was just a fantastic oh, scene. And I think you know exactly which one I'm talking about. Um, thank you. Rocks in a circle, but no, I'm going to stop there. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think I think if you if you enjoyed the battle scenes in um a drowned kingdom i think the last the atlantis uh, all i can say is buckle your seat because uh you know a, a fellow writer awesome writer lucian telford who i mentioned who writes um science fiction around the book, book called the sequence he's read a drowned kingdom he he loved it i loved his book too but he just uh was one of the the couple reader readers that's read the last atlantis and he's like i'm dreaming about your battle scenes man i can't get them out of my head and that's something that i never aspired I thought I'd be good at writing to be honest with you I thought it'd be more the world building that I'd, I'd probably be acknowledged for but uh you know for whatever reason I've, I seem to be successful in in writing those scenes so I want to I guess I'll keep it try and keep it up and hopefully they'll they'll keep living up to par yeah I 
I hope they do, do as well. It's like when discovering when or trying something new, you, you don't really know what your strengths and your or your weaknesses are. I'm learning that with blogging and doing this podcast stuff as well. So uh, every day is you learn something new about yourself and, and you do something that you never thought you would. So that's that's part of just just part of growing, and I'm appreciative of that. And with that, I think we'll start wrapping up. Uh, why don't you tell uh, our listeners where they can find you, where they can. Uh, find your book and series and where they can contact you. Okay. Well, uh, best place to contact me is I'm on several social media platforms, Instagram, uh, Facebook, and Twitter. However, Twitter, as, as you know, blaze is, is where predominantly I spend most of my social media time. Um, my Twitter handle is at P L Stewart, S T U A R T rights. One word at P L Stewart, S T U A R T rights. Um, and uh, my website, uh, we can, you know, uh, read about my books um, get updates on the series, etc. I do a blog. I also do uh, author interviews called Six Elementals Interviews, where I, I pose six questions to creatives uh, just to get you, you know, give you a, a bit of a taste about what they're like and what the writing's about. Um, and of course, now working with Before We Go blog, um, you know, I, I, I'm doing a lot of stuff there too. But my website is www.plstuart.com. Um, again, please, I welcome you to check it out and, and, and feel free, especially on Twitter. My DMs are open. If you want to talk writing or ask me any questions, feel free to DM. Uh, you can also send me messages through my website. Um, so once again, The Last of the Atlanteans is premiering in a couple months in spring of 2022. Uh, Drown Kingdom is out now. It's coming out in audiobook also in the next few months. Right now it is in um, ebook, hardcover and softcover format. Be on the lookout for book two coming in the spring, everybody. It's going to be a real, real epic. Um, thanks so much, PL, for joining me. And I uh, appreciate it, everything you've done. And cheers to everybody and have a good night.